Welcome. We are in a new series on the book of Acts, and this is going to be a lengthy series. But I'm confident we spent 26 weeks in the book of Ephesians, really just mining that out as we started the church. And one thing became clear, this church loves the Word of God. And so taking on the book of Acts is a big one. I mean, we may be in the book of Acts for a year, uh, but I am confident that God is going to meet us here and give us exactly what we need. As we open up the book of Acts today, it's interesting because the book of Acts opens up kind of rewinding to Jesus' resurrection and to his ascension into, into heaven. And as we open Acts 1, we see that the disciples uh, are told not to go and fill the Great Commission just yet, but to wait. And I started to think about that. And my question to you is this as we get going this morning. Have you ever set out on a journey of your own? And, you know, full of anticipation on this journey or this trip that you're going on only to be held up by something? Did that ever happen? If you have small kids, you better raise your hand because you know this happens every single day of your life, right? This always happens. This happens to us. I can remember when I was in college, uh, the Lord had called me to move to Las Vegas, to, to leave Bible college in Kentucky, uh, to quit Bible college and to move to Las Vegas. The Lord had he seriously called me to do that, I promise. And so... I am anxious about the call that God's given me uh, and want to pursue it with all my heart. And so I'm working, I'm waiting tables at Logan's Roadhouse, which is the place where you can throw peanuts all over the ground and not feel bad about it. So you can take your kids there and let them throw all kinds of stuff on the ground. Guys like me would sweep it up every night. A lot of fun. And so I'm working, I get off work, it is my last day of work, I am ready to move to Las Vegas. It's Christmas break in Kentucky, it's cold outside. I get back to my apartment in Louisville, and I've got to pack up all of my stuff, and I've got this little blue Ford Ranger, which is a small pickup truck, uh, and, and I begin loading my truck up. Uh, and evidently I had acquired some more possessions than I thought I had uh, while in Louisville, and my truck was filling up pretty quick. And so it starts to rain, and it's, it's pretty comical. I mean, the neighbors were probably laughing because all of my roommates were out of town, and I am trying to load my entire you know, room of my apartment up into my little Ford Ranger by myself. And so here I come. It's 1 o'clock in the morning, mind you. Okay, I've just gotten off work at a restaurant. I'm loading my truck up at night. I'm carrying my mattress you know, down the steps, you know those apartment staircases, the, the, the turns, you know, you got to pivot and all that kind of stuff, and, and so you're, you're trying to carry the mattress down the steps by yourself, and then it starts to rain. So, I mean, things are, things are not going as planned. I'm ready to go to Vegas. I'm trying to get home, and so as I'm loading the truck, I'm growing, I'm growing a little impatient. It's getting late at night, and so I think at some point in this journey of uh, packing the truck, I start to shortcut some things. Now, shortcutting things isn't a bad thing as long as you shortcut the right things, correct? So I put a tarp over the mattress in the truck. And so my truck, the, the inside of it's full of like all the electronics and stereo stuff. The back of it, I'm thinking, okay, I've got all these clothes. What am I going to do with these clothes? So I've got the box spring and the mattress in the back of the truck. And in between them, sandwiched in between them is all of my clothes, okay? And then and then I put the tarp over top of the mattress. And, you know, I, I didn't stay in Boy Scouts that long, so I'm not real sure how to tie down things real good. So I put the mattress over it, and, uh, and, I, and I tie it around the mattress. And, and I forget to tie the, the tarp to the truck. So I tie it around the mattress, but not to the truck. And so 
So yeah, it's, so I get, get going on the road in my little Ford Ranger, and it's raining, and I'm exhausted, but I'm headed home. I'm headed home and getting ready to move to Las Vegas. I get on I-71 in Louisville and begin to make my way uh, toward home. And I'm no kidding, I'm a mile down the road. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. And I look at my rearview mirror, and all of a sudden, the mattress has lifted off of the back of the truck, and it is midair. All of the clothes that are in between the mattress are like confetti in the sky. They are all over the place. And then I look at this, this Ford Mustang that is spinning around in circles like this behind me because the mattress has landed on the hood of the car. I mean, it, it goes from bad to worse. Luckily, the lady doesn't get hurt. I'm, I'm out on the interstate trying to collect my belongings. Everything I own is in this truck, right? I'm trying to collect my belongings. And the only thing that I'm able to salvage is this little University of Kentucky jacket that has a tire marker across it. So if you ever see me wearing it, I still have it. It's very sentimental. Don't take it from me uh, because it's the only thing that I'm holding on to from all those clothes that I lost. I tell you this because I got held up. I lost all of my clothes. I lost my mattress. I wanted to go to Vegas, but I had to wait. I had to wait because I didn't have anything to take to Vegas. It was a bad situation. Where we pick up in the book of Acts is the disciples are waiting. We've called this series Saturate because there's two movements of the gospel through the book of Acts. And the movements are this. It's the deep movement of the gospel deep into people's hearts as the gospel is preached. It reveals uh, dark places of people's hearts as they're converted and they come to Jesus. But it also moves wide to Jerusalem, to Judea, and all of Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It is moving and one thing becomes clear. It can't be stopped. It cannot be stopped. And so we pick up this morning in Acts chapter 1. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Here we go. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's pray. Father, this is a seemingly uh, introductory and non-important passage of the Scripture, but we know that every single bit of your, of your Word that you have given to us is necessary to build us up in the faith. And so this morning, Lord, I specifically pray that you would show us the implications of the resurrection on our life and why we need the resurrection to be living and active. The body of God, of, of Jesus Christ, living and acting inside of us, as we live as Christians. Would you show us that this morning through your word? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take us and look at a few details in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, but then I, I, want, to, I want to kind of depart from there and take it a little deeper and look at three uh, realities for Christians because of the resurrection. So let's look at some of the details of of the book of Acts as we get into it this morning. So 
Uh, This guy by the name of Luke, who is a physician, writes the book of Acts. John Calvin says it's, it's best to view the book of Acts and the book of Luke, his first book that he talks about, uh, as a holy knot, that they are tied together. That one is predominantly about Jesus' words and his life. The other one is kind of about Jesus' work. And I think a lot of times we look at the book of Acts, and what we, what we think of is, oh, these are the acts of the apostles. But J.I. Packer says it's a little better to look at it like this, that this is actually the acts of Jesus through the apostles by the Spirit. Because church, here's our big idea of where we're going today. The only life in the church is the life of Jesus. The only life in the church is the life of Jesus. So the life of Jesus is what is empowering every single thing that happens in the book of Acts. How the gospel begins to go forth, going wide and deep. It is the life of Jesus working in and through his people by the Holy Spirit. So you're beginning to see why it's so important for the disciples to wait. Because if they don't have the presence of Jesus with them, they have got nothing. So there they are, they wait. Theophilus is this guy that no one really knows about. Commentators say a lot of different things about this guy Theophilus, who the book of Acts was written to. And it's interesting because a Theophilus means a friend of God. So we're not sure if this is kind of a pseudonym for, for like all Christians or if this is an actual guy. If it is an actual guy, it's probably a, a wealthy ruling class Gentile that, that likely became converted uh, in response to reading Luke's first letter about the life of Jesus. And then Luke kind of continues the ministry of Jesus through his people in the book of Acts. And, and if we look at, uh, at the expansion of Jesus' ministry, we're, we're actually a part of a network of churches called Acts 29. And uh, I, I often get the question, like, Acts 29, what are you talking? Like, there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Why, why are you guys called Acts 29? Well, the whole point of Acts 29 is that the ministry of Jesus is still going forward through his church to this day. And so we see that the, the life of Jesus is still having tremendous impact. We're not just looking back to what Jesus did, but Jesus is still doing the work through his spirit. So, <clears throat> so we, look, we look at Acts chapter 1, 1 through 5, and Jesus, it, it, says, it says this, that until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So what are these commands that Jesus gives his disciples? Well, it's, it's, the, it's the, the great commandment, which, which is love, and it's the great commission, which is the advancement of the gospel through his people. And we're going to look a little more in depth at that here in a few moments. So those are the commands that he talks about. It says, you know, for 40 days, Jesus uh, is revealing himself to his disciples. He's showing them how real he is and the fact that he's still in the flesh. It's really important for Jesus to continue to show his disciples that he's still human. Why is that important? Because Jesus, when he condescended, he became a man. And he became a man to never not be a man again. Think about that. Jesus has always existed. But he condescends, comes down as the Philippians 2 servant, the John 13 foot washer, to save and redeem sinners. And he remains seated at the right hand of the Father, as we're going to talk about interceding for sinners. Jesus comes, and for 40 days, he's, he makes at least 10 appearances to his disciples. We see this all throughout uh, the, the, gospel, the, the Gospels, and, and, and he's making these appearances to show them and, and prove to them how real he is. 
And then he says that you know, you're to wait for the, the, the baptism of the Spirit. Now, I want to park on this for a second because there's a, there's a popular notion uh, in our culture uh, and in some evangelical branches that say that, that, that the baptism like for conversion and water baptism is different than the baptism of the Spirit, that those are two distinct kind of things. Well, in the, in the Scriptures right here, we see that there was, there was this kind of transitional period Right when uh, when John baptized with a baptize, baptism of repentance, and John was the last prophet. He he was the last prophet preparing the way of Jesus. If you remember the role of John the Baptist, his whole his whole ministry was I must decrease, he must increase. I want to prepare the way for Jesus. So, so some folks think that okay, th- this is um, <clears throat> this is prescriptive that there's a there's, there's a water baptism and then there's a spiritual baptism. Typically what we see in the scriptures is that in conversion, all of those things kind of come together. When believers come to faith uh, through repentance and they have faith in Jesus, they're baptized in the Spirit, uh, they're baptized and then the Spirit accompanies them when they're converted. I mean, that's just what happens. That's what we see as a regular rule of thumb in the book of Acts. And we'll see that over and over and over again. So in some branches where they say, you know, the proof of baptism of the Spirit is the gift of tongues and things like that. Uh, while, while I respect them, I just don't see it in the Scripture. So I just wanted to take a moment and park on that and just kind of teach on that for just a moment since this is where that typically comes from uh, in the Word. Uh, so this is essentially, Acts chapter 1, 1 through 5, is, is essentially repeating Luke chapter 24, where it talks about the road to Emmaus, where, where Jesus opens uh, the, the, the two disciples that are walking down the road to Emmaus. He opens their mind to understand all things concerning himself is what it says. So basically, all of the Word of God is pointing to and magnifying Jesus Christ is what we see. And it's so essential that the book of Acts, the second letter of Luke, starts with the resurrection. It's so essential because this is the foundation for everything that's about to happen. Because the only life that's to be found in the church is the life of Jesus. So how does the resurrection affect our lives today? Because the resurrection is mentioned in nearly every sermon in the book of Acts. Yet, sometimes we don't talk about it too much. We just kind of assume it. And then there are other times in our life where we find, simply find the resurrection pretty lifeless, don't we? If we're honest. I've had kind of one of those weeks. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that at the end of the sermon today. So I want to look at three uh, resurrection realities today. But first, I want to look at a quote from Tom Wright. So it'll be up on the screen. I'll read this for you. Tom Wright says this, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's prayer is all about. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So I want to I challenge us to think differently about the resurrection. The re- is the, re- is the resurrection of the body for the church, is that, are we going to be glorified and go to be with Jesus? Are we going to have a bodily resurrection? Yes, the Scriptures tell us that in 1 Corinthians 15. We will experience glorification. But in the, in the meantime, what the book of Acts shows us is that we can experience resurrection right here and today. We can experience the spiritual resurrection of new birth and life. And the, and the work of the Spirit today, as we see throughout the book of Acts, is to colonize earth with the life of heaven. This is the work that the, that, the, that, the, that the resurrection of Jesus produces through his people. So let's look into these three resurrection realities. The first one is this. 
Forgiveness of sins is certain because Jesus' payment for sin is sufficient. Let me say that again. Forgiveness of sins is certain because Jesus' payment for sin is sufficient. Now this is a weighty subject. I think it's important for us to talk about sin because that's the whole reason why Jesus went to the cross. Like if we, if we don't have the cross, there's really no need for the resurrection. And if we don't see the fact that we have sin in our lives, and, and if, 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 if you're in one of those places where you find it difficult to consider yourself a sinner, I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 1 through 3. Uh, it expounds pretty clearly the fact that we all have this, mag, this, this, this huge, massive sin problem. It's what Jesus came to deal with. So think about it like this. Think about the resurrection like this. So Jesus uh, comes, he, he, bears, he bears the weight of sin on his shoulders, goes to the cross, is buried in a grave. Let's, let's stop. Let's, let's act like this is Good Friday, this is the, the Saturday before Easter, and Jesus is still in the grave. If Jesus has sin in his life, let's just say he messed up in one area. You know, he, he did whatever kind of motive he had in his heart. It was just selfish or whatever. He had sin in his life in one area. Would Jesus raise from the dead? Jesus wouldn't be able to be our perfect substitute if he had sin in his life, and Jesus would still be in the grave. He'd still be in the grave, and he wouldn't be able to deal with our sin issue. He couldn't be trusted because he didn't have the perfect life that we need to have resurrected lives ourselves. Jesus, when he rises from the dead, what we see is that his sacrifice is sufficient for our sin. Yet time and time again, I don't know about you, but for myself, what I see is time and time again, I think that I've got to pay for sin all over again. That I've got to punish myself because Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. And so I beat myself up over and over and over again. Instead of, instead of taking ten looks at Jesus, I take ten looks at myself and one look at Jesus. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. I want to read 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 10 uh, to you right now. This talks a little bit more about what Jesus came to do. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, when's the last time you used the word propitiation in a sentence? Probably not a, a real regular word that we use. You know the reason why it's in the Bible, even in modern tra translations, is because there's not a word that fits what propitiation says. There's not another English word that's common to us. What does propitiation mean? It means to turn away wrath. R.C. Sproul says something that... that that's really tough for me to hear if I'm honest with you, but I, it's something I need to hear. Ultimately, Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. Ultimately, Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. Think about that. I mean, that's, that's uncomfortable to hear, isn't it? To think of God as wrathful. God is wrathful towards sin because He is so holy. This is why Jesus had to come as the perfect, spotless, unblemished, unblemished land to, to, to pay the penalty for our sin. And then by faith, we could be resurrected with him because sin couldn't hold him in the grave. So how does it work out? Well, sin is imputed to us. Imputed means kind of given to us, put on us. Sin is imputed to us because we are born of the line of Adam. And then through, through faith... Uh, 
before that, sin is then imputed to Jesus. Our sin is imputed to Jesus. So all of, our, all of the sins of those that would call Jesus God are imputed to Jesus, and he dies on the cross, and he pays the penalty for that sin. And when he raises from the dead, then we get all of the righteousness of Jesus because he's actually the one that's overcome the grave. We get all of that given to us, imputed to us. And so when the Father sees us, when the Father looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of God in our lives. Isn't that crazy? And yet time and time again, I can seem so indifferent to the resurrection and so consumed by my sin. But the whole reason that Jesus came is to satisfy that wrath, to deal with our sin problem. And by faith, church, you need to hear this because I need to hear this today. I am forgiven because of the resurrection. I'm forgiven. You know, there's only hope for one group of people in the world. It's those people that know that they're sinners. Because if we don't think that we're sinners, we call God a liar is what the scriptures say. But we need, the, we need Jesus to get out of the grave so that we can be forgiven. That we can be in a right relationship with God. And it's, it's not like we're hiding anything from God that he doesn't know certain parts of our life. He knows every single thing about us. And he loves us the same as we say. He loves us the same because he sees Jesus when he sees me and he sees you. Second reality of the resurrection is that I have a king that loves me and knows me. Because he's both transcendent, meaning above everything, and imminent, meaning he's close, he's nearby. Because here's, here's the truth. We need Jesus to be on the throne of heaven, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, and we need him to be in our midst. We don't need either or, we need both and. And this is what Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, 7, as he's talking about this whole transcendent element here. So John 16, 7 will be on the screen here. Nevertheless, so the disciples, if you remember, we, we preached through uh, the upper room discourse, and we talked about this idea that the disciples didn't want Jesus to go away, but he keeps mentioning to him the fact that, that he has to go away, and they're really troubled by this fact that, that he has to go away. And Jesus tells them this in the upper room discourse over the, over the meal that they have. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. <laughs> That's got to be a baffling statement. It's to your advantage that I go What do you mean, Jesus? You're making kind of all things new. We're enjoying your presence. You're leading us. You're discipling us. This is this great thing. But he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. And why is that? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go I will send him to you. Jesus has to be transcendent so that he can send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to be imminent, to be close, to be near to us. So Jesus is interceding for us and his spirit is living for us, living in us through faith. Hebrews chapter 7 um, is a very important passage too because have you ever wondered, have you ever asked yourself, what is Jesus doing right now? What's he doing? What's Jesus up to? I mean, he's not with us. He's not in our midst, like physically. Through his spirit, he's with us. But what's Jesus up to right now? You ever had that question? Hebrews chapter 7 uh, answers that question for us. The former priests were many in number because they were pre prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. There's, there's no need for any other priest to intercede. That's what he's saying here. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him 
since he always lives to make intercession for us. So what's Jesus doing? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding, pleading our case before the Father. And a lot of times people look at God and they think, man, God is, man, he is tough, man, he's rough. I mean, he's, and I, his wrath is gonna, you know, it, it kills me if I'm not in Christ and all those things. But I want you to remember who the Father is. Is it not, is, is, is God the Father not the John 3.16 Father? Is He not? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. It was the Father's love that sent the Son. And now it's the Son's love that sends the Spirit that makes all of these things a reality to us. So Jesus has to be transcendent. He has to be he has to be seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. He's also close. He's imminent. So if He doesn't send the Spirit, there's no conviction of sin. It's the Spirit. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. His Spirit. If there's no, convic- if there's no conviction of sin, there's no need of salvation. If there's no need of salvation, there's no need for resurrection. Jesus sends the Spirit. He is close to us. And Jesus, think about this, Jesus has the power of life within Him. He has always been. He was with the Father when the world was spoken into existence. He's the Word. He's the Logos. He has the very power of life within Him. He is the definition of life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's who Jesus is. He is the resurrection. Romans 8, 11 says this about the implications of the resurrection for us. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and we stop right there. If, if that's true, he's saying, and, and we know from the word that that's true, because this is what Jesus came to do. He, he went to the Father so he could send the Spirit to us and make all this a reality in our heart. If that's true, if He dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. We're going to be glorified, folks. We're going to have a new body. We're going to be raised forever with Jesus. We're going to be in His perfect presence forever with no fear of sin or of death because Jesus is the resurrection and His life dwells in us as His people. So, church, we have a King that both loves us. He loves us enough to go to the Father. And He knows us because He sent His Spirit to live and dwell inside of us. Lastly, the, the last re- resurrection reality we're going to look at this morning is this. is I am a vessel of the resurrection to the world. So we need to be forgiven. We need Jesus to go to the Father and we need Him to send the Spirit. And it's all for this, it's, it's all for this purpose of receiving the love of God and showing the love of God, which is the mission of God. That's the whole thing that He came to do. So Jesus, Jesus came to restore purpose and dignity to humanity. So we, we, had, we had lost complete sight of what we were created for, which was to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And when Jesus comes, He restores that life by giving us His life because we lost the life that we were given through sin. So the work that He's come to give us to do is to make the resurrection known in the world. 
to make it known, to make it clear that there is life, that we don't have to continue on trying to make life out of things that are created, things, material things, relationships. We don't have to try to create life. Life is a gift that he gives us when we come to him. So those, two com- those commands that, Jesus, that, that, that Luke writes about in Acts 1 that Jesus gives, these are the two commands that I see in the Scripture that, that Jesus gives. The first one is love. And the second one is mission. So as His disciples are waiting on the Spirit to come, He says, I've given, I've given, I've given these commands and we're teaching about, Jesus was teaching about the kingdom and now they're waiting in the upper room for... They're, they're, they're waiting for 40, they're not waiting in the upper room, but they're waiting for 40 days, and after Jesus ascends into heaven, they'll be waiting in the upper room for 10 more days, waiting for the Spirit to come. And the Spirit comes on Pentecost, which means 50, so 50 days they wait for the Spirit to come so that they can begin the mission that God has called them to do, which is a mission to love and to love the world. That's the mission of what God came to do. So Jesus gives this new command in John chapter 13. He breathes life into us, and he says that this is, the, this is the whole mission of what the disciples are supposed to be about. This is a new commandment I give to you, John 13, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Remember how that ties into to 1 John 4, that, that we love because he first loves us? You also are to love one another. And li- listen to the mission right here. Listen, listen to how the gospel goes forth. By this this love that you have for one another, all people will know that you are mine, that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, we make it so hard. We make following God so complex, but it's really about this issue of love, of receiving love and putting yourself in places where you can actually love other people. You can see them as made in the image of God and seek to serve as Jesus came to serve us. I, I, I love that passage. And, and if you've you got a Bible, maybe, maybe underline that. But, but a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And, and just as is that, is that phrase that just blows my mind. Because how, how did Jesus love us? He loved us with the just as love, didn't he? Just as. Just as we were, He loved us unconditionally. And this is the type of love that the world needs to see through the life of Jesus present in His church through the Spirit. A just-as kind of love. Not not a love that says, hey, if you can jump up to to this bar or this step right here, then I will love you just as. No, no, no. It's just as. Right where you're at, this unconditional love that we are called to love the world with. This just-as love. And then this love, what it does is it births this mission because love cannot be contained. And we love the folks that God brings us into relationship with this just as love. And it's, it's so attractive. Have you ever had someone love you just as you were? I was, in a, I was in a counseling session this week and had a guy that said, man, I really, really love this, my grandfather because he loved me with this just as kind of love. He was interested in me. Not what I could do, not what I could achieve, not what kind of name I could make for our family. He was interested in me with this just as love. Church, if we can get this, man, if, if we could get that, if we could, if we could see, if we could look to Jesus and see how he loves us with this just as love. 
and then see the world around us as made in the image of God, loving them with a just-as love, I think God's Spirit would move mightily in our midst. Jesus gives another command, a commission, in Matthew 28. And this is probably familiar to you, but I want to read it anyway. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is kind of Jesus' parting words to His disciples. He says, And Jesus came, to, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. He says this right before He ascends. And when He ascends, it's proven that all authority has been given to Him. He can do anything He wants. He says, I can do anything that I want. But here's, here's what I want to do. I want to send you. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Because you know what? You can't live on God's mission without God's life inside of us. That's, it's the most forgotten phrase in the Bible. I am with you always to the end of the age of the age, but it's the only way that the mission of God goes forward when we see that God is with us in the midst of our trial and our pain. He is with us. You know what discipleship is? You know, the, the, the imperative here, a lot of people think that it's go, but it's actually make disciples. Meaning, that's, that's the thrust of the passage is to make disciples. And really the way that it reads in the Greek is, as you make, this, make disciples as you're going. Make disciples as you're going. Do you know what discipleship is? It is the formation of the resurrection in people's lives. That's what it is. It's forming the resurrected life in the dead parts of people's lives. That's what we're called to do because that's what God does to us. He's taking the gospel deep into us and bringing to life the dead parts of our hearts. That's what the resurrection is all about. I read a book this week called Living the Resurrection by Eugene Peterson, and he says this. The disciples' familiar concept of resurrection as life after death being totally recast as life in the land of the living. So it's kind of an incomplete sentence. But what he's saying here is that, that many times we think of the resurrection as life after death. We think about it particularly as a futuristic concept. We don't think that it's, that it's, that it's for us to attain right now in the present. We don't think the resurrection bears on our lives Day in, day out, in everyday ordinary life. What Eugene Peterson says is that we should see resurrection, yes, as life after death, but also as life in the land of the living. That even though there's deadness all around us, that God is bringing things to life. He's breathing life into the air all around us. This is why the resurrection is so crucial to the book of Acts. Because it's this life that will be manifested in His people that will go uh, throughout the world and bring many people to Himself that is still going forward today. And as we close today, I want to consider a couple things. Where are you today with the resurrection? Are you in a season of life right now where the resurrection seems really alive and really, I mean, you just see God's Word and it's beautiful and it just warms your heart? Or are you in a season right now where God seems distant? Where, where things seem dry, where the resurrection seems lifeless. Because this, if I'm honest with you, this week was a week for me where I just got blindsided. It's like I would sit before people, pour their hearts out, and I just, 
was doing everything that I could to stay present in the room because the resurrection was lifeless for some reason. And my temptation in those moments, and maybe you have those moments of drought too, is to work harder, to just, to just resist it at all costs, isn't it? To do whatever I've got to do to get in good graces with God and to assume that I've done something wrong. But I was meeting with a friend of mine this week, and he encouraged me to look at it a different way. He said, when you're in those seasons of desolation, ask this question to the Lord. What are you doing right now that you could not do apart from this circumstance? What are you doing in me right now that you could not do if I was in another circumstance? See, Ignatius of Loyola um, was a guy that was deeply inclined to spiritual things. He's a, he's a canonized saint in the Catholic Church, and, and he had this concept of spirituality that really addressed this idea of, of these, these spiritual peaks that we have in our life and these spiritual valleys that we have in our life. Times where we see the resurrection full of life and times where we see the resurrection, I mean, just as lifeless. And the way that he phrased it was this. When we're on those spiritual mountaintops, we're in a season of consolation. It's life-giving. It's full of hope. And we know that God is active and it's obvious to all around us. But he says every once in a while, the Lord will take you through a season of desolation. And the temptation is to think that you've done something wrong. To think that, you are, that, that God has left you, that He's forgotten about you. But if Matthew 28, 20 is true, that, he's, that, that, that God is with us to the very end of the age, and we are following Jesus, we, we have faith in Christ on our behalf, we will still go through those seasons of desolation. So what are we to do when we are in a season of consolation or a season of desolation? Well, he proposes that we're in one of those seasons of consolation that we need to remember. We need to remember, we need to store memories, we need to put landmarks in our life of those seasons of consolation because you know what? We're going to need to come back to those landmarks when we're in a season of desolation. We're going to need to come back and remember what it was like to, to see and taste that the Lord is good because we're going to go through a season where He doesn't seem sweet. And it's not because Jesus has left us. It's because God is doing a work that He could not otherwise do than through that season of desolation. When the resurrection seems lifeless. And when you're in a season of desolation, he gives this image that is also uh, of uh, another saint that's canonized in the, in the Catholic Church, Teresa. And, and she gives this image that's really interesting. I, have you guys ever, um, I've been to the Dead Sea before. Um, maybe some of you have been there before. If you haven't been in the Dead Sea, uh, the thing about the Dead Sea is this, is you float very effortlessly. Have you ever tried to float in a deep swimming pool or a lake or the ocean before? Anybody tried to do that, to float? When you first try to float, it's, it's kind of difficult, right? Because uh, you, you don't really think that you're going to float. And so what do you do? You resist it. And you, when you resist trying to float, what happens? You sink, right? You sink every single time. What Teresa says is that when you're in a season of desolation, you need to float in the grace of God. Let Him have His way with you because... Regardless of what your wish is, he's going to have his way. He's going to produce whatever effect he wants to produce in you because you are his and he is conforming us to the image of Jesus. And you know what? We don't know what we need. 
We think that we need all of these seasons of consolation, all these mountaintop experiences, but God needs to take us to the valley to show us how real He is. And in those seasons, what are we to do? We're to float along on the grace of God. To not resist it, but to float because we know that He cares for us. We know that He has our best interest in mind. Church, Jesus came to put an end to our search for life. And He came to do that through the resurrection. And that has everything to do with how we live as Christians. Every single day. And if, if you're in here and you're not yet a believer, you're not yet a follower of Christ, I would, I would ask you to consider the fact that there was a naked bloody man that died on a cross and He said that He died for you and He went to the grave bearing, the sins, bearing your sins and then He came out of the grave. And the question is, what do we do with that? Because everybody has to do something with that. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, He left our sin in the grave. And because of that, we can be forgiven. So I want to encourage you to ponder that thought as we head into communion here in a few minutes. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You that uh, because of the resurrection, we have life. Uh, and because we have life, there is no longer any fear of death. There is no longer any fear of punishment. Uh, because the resurrection is real, the resurrection is true, because Jesus came out of the grave. Father, I pray specifically right now for those that are in a season of desolation right now, where the resurrection of Jesus seems lifeless and their hearts are indifferent toward it. Father, I, I would have prayed for you to rescue them from that, but I don't pray for that. I pray that you sustain them, to sustain us in those moments when you feel far from us because you're doing a work in us that you could not otherwise do. We need those moments. And I pray in all things that you would comfort us because that is, after all, who you are. A comforter. Meet us this morning. It's in Jesus' name.